Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up? This is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And this is Joe McCormick. We just finished an episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on cattle mutilation phenomenon, on cattle mutilation, the cattle mutilation panic of the 1970s. So I thought it made sense to dive into a little mutosploitation cinema here. As we discussed in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind episode, the cattle mutilation panic hit a peak around 1975. And while exploitation and beast cinema are generally pretty quick to get in there and uh, comment on or exploit something like this for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it seems like most of the pictures attempting to cash in on cattle mutilation panic didn't really come out until around 1980, which I guess maybe makes sense given like you know how long it takes to get a, a film project together. Uh, and there may have been some earlier ones that I just couldn't come across. But uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about a prime example of cattle mutilation exploitation cinema here. We're going to be talking about Graydon Clark's 1980 film, The Return. Now, fans of Weird House Cinema may well recall that the very first episode of Weird House Cinema was another Graydon Clark movie. It was also a Graydon Clark alien movie called mm-hmm. Without Warning, which in many ways prefigured the plot of Predator, except with a, uh, uh, would you say, a less gritty-looking alien? <laughs> a little more, <laughs> a kind of a uh, a classic big-head alien? 
Yeah, very Outer Limits, the alien in that one. That was also a film that came out in 1980. That was also a film that had Martin Landau in it. And it was also a film that had a lot of shots, that, including like terror shots and horror scenes that take place broad daylight somewhere in the California countryside. This movie, supposed, The Return, is supposed to take place in New Mexico, but I believe they filmed everything in California. So you're looking at California in this film. Now, I'd say there's one major difference for me between Without Warning and The Return, and it's that Without Warning had Dean Cundy doing cinematography, which is always a, a treat for me. I, uh, you know, I, I love his style, even in rather mundane shots. You know, you don't have to mm-hmm. get into the the real art house framing. Dean Cundy has a a really punchy way of like establishing uh, ambient locations and stuff. And so, uh, so, so that was a great thing about Without Warning. He was not doing cinematography for or the return, but uh, the cinematography is still pretty good for for a cattle mutilation alien flick. Yeah, and it, and it also makes sense given how successful the cinematographer for this film would go on to be, uh, and we'll get to that in a bit. But um, yeah, oh, the, the other thing about um, this film about the return versus Without Warning is Without Warning was the pilot episode and first episode of Weird House Cinema back in October of 2020. So. This is kind of a, uh, it, it makes, it, it's extra special that we're doing a return uh, to the work of Graydon Clark. Bringing it all back home. Now, uh, speaking of the cattle mutilation subgenre of, uh, of motion pictures, uh, I do want to at least briefly mention, I'll probably come back to it a few times as well, that the, another notable film in this subgenre is Alan Rudolph's 1982 film, Endangered Species which I, I also watched recently. It's a pretty solid conspiracy thriller. Uh, it starred Robert uh, Urich and featured performances by Paul Dooley, Peter Coyote, Hoyt Axton, and Dan Hedaya. The, Dan the Hedaya, all right. Yeah, yeah it's not a, big, not a big role for Hedaya, but, but he gets in there and, and does Hedaya things. So it's, uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it's pretty good. It's a film that falls very much on the government conspiracy end of things with cattle mutilation, portrays oh. it in, a, I think, it's about as believable terms as possible for the most part. Like it might be the most logical cattle mutilation movie you could ask for, and I think that's a big <laughs> ask. Uh-huh. Okay. So, yeah, I can see that. So, the return, I guess we will spoil the ending of this movie eventually. So, warning spoilers to come if if you're planning on seeing it and haven't. But uh, the return ends up more on the aliens side. And yeah. uh, and th- that, that other one does the government conspiracy side. Though there's a little bit of government conspiracy flair thrown into this one. Though it's only, it's only a hint. You never really know exactly how much government conspiracy there is in the return because we have like suits showing up in the third act and it is never explained how much they know or what they're trying to do they're just sort of like there to start shooting at the protagonist yeah they're not really sewn into the the fabric all that well but that can be said for a number of things in this film. yeah um i will say one more thing about um Endangered Species is that it, 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 as with Alan Rudolph's Trouble in Mind, uh, we also have some issues surrounding the male protagonist in that. The lead character played by uh, Robert Urich is, um, he isn't as sketchy as the lead character in Trouble in Mind, but there's a fair amount of like noir-esque uh, masculine toxicity to the character that I do not think is aged well. Uh, so be advised of that if you check out Endangered Species. But again, still, it's a pretty solid uh, conspiracy thriller. And if you want to watch a, a decent movie about cattle mutilation, it's a pretty good one to pick up. All right. 
Now, there are a couple of other, a uh, few other entries in the uh, CMP cinema subgenre, uh, but uh, eh, let's see, they, they, most of them didn't really pop out at me. It looks like there's a, a movie from 1979 titled Nightwing that has David Warner and Stephen Mocked in it, so that sounds pretty good. And there's a 1986 low-budget film called Mutilations, which looks like it has, has developed sort of a following uh, f- due to its like low-budget, uh, uh, you know, Z-grade goodness. I've not seen any of these other movies. So The Return is my first uh, within this subgenre. And in a way, it's kind of hard for me to imagine improving upon this formula because it's just like, what if we just take a great cast, take the premise of cattle mutilation without actually making the movie all that gory and gross? Like, this, this is not a, a bloody splatter fest for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no. Um, if, if you like movies where people walk up to a dead cow and talk about it, <laughs> in, dire- in direct sunlight, uh, yeah. this is the movie for you because we have multiple scenes like that. I think it also sort of blunts the the squeamishness and grotesquerie of the the cattle mutilation when we discover that it is basically being performed by a a small lightsaber. Oh yes, yes, essentially a small surgical lightsaber. Uh, yeah, it becomes clear that that is the. Um, the, the instrument being used, which I think is a this one of the things I loved about the film. And once I, I realized that that was going to be an element and I was like, oh, well, I'm in, especially yeah. when you see who's wielding the lightsaber. Uh, it's pretty great. And I think it's almost kind of surprising nobody's come back and done that again, like rural slasher film with alien surgical lightsaber. That's a great premise. Like, it, it is weird. It, I love it. <laughs> well, it is. Uh, here's something I'm psychologically curious about. Uh, I assume that other people would probably feel the same way. Uh, but certainly the way I reacted to this movie, the the violence was a lot less icky and a lot less uh, bothersome because it was being inflicted with a little lightsaber versus if it had just been done with like a knife or a, or a you know, straightforward metal blade. Yeah, if nothing else, the limitations of effects. And the effects are pretty good in this film, but the limitations of what you can do or should try to do with an effect like this in 1980 meant that you're not going to get big, goopy, uh, prolonged gore scenes like you would get potentially get in a slasher movie by other directors during this time period. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not even really as gory as... Um, as without warning, you know, we have lots of scenes of alien, um, you know, sucker weapons being pulled off of people's skin in that one. Oh, yeah. All right. For, so as far as elevator pitch for this one goes, um, I, ha- I had a hard time coming up with one that doesn't spoil the film. I was tempted to go with cattle mutilation, the motion picture. But I also think uh, upon reflection, it could be um, cattle mutilation, colon, uh, misconnections. Because ultimately <laughs> it is about misconnections uh, with cattle mutilation thrown in there. Well, wait then, Rob. Are we going to try not to spoil the film? Um, I mean, I think at this point we could we could start spoiling it. Okay, okay. This is one that I would advise do not watch the the trailer in full for because the trailer for this one is uh, amusing, but it like shows you everything. And I feel mm-hmm. like it does. This film does have some twists and turns up its sleeve. Um, you know, it's not uh, it, it's not dependent upon those twists, but they are kind of fun to uh, to uh, to take in organically. Well, let me try my hand at a elevator pitch here. It is an unhinged alcoholic cop and an uptight city-dwelling scientist find the meaning of love when they come together to investigate the mutilation of livestock. All right, well, let's go ahead and hear just part of the trailer. I think we're only going to play like a minute of it here, uh, but it'll give you a taste of, of what it's all about. Who will have the right 
to live on Earth. The Return. Looking into cattle mutilations on my own for some time. Notice the incisions. The precise surgical cuts. That's freaking everybody out. And none of the other animals will even go near it. Hell, there's not even any flies or ants on it. I won't be threatened on my land. You here to help us on these cattle mutilations? Some damn scientists don't know the, the difference between a cow and a steer telling us our business. I believe this trailer uh, began with a line like, who, like, who will have the right to live on Earth or something like that, uh, which, which is amusing because it has nothing to do with the plot of the film. Um, who will own the title deed to planet Earth? <laughs> yeah. Uh, now, if you want to watch this film as well, um, it's, it's actually pretty easy to come by. I feel like when I was looking into this film months ago, it seems like nobody had it streaming or I couldn't find it streaming. Videodrome didn't have a copy of it to rent here in Atlanta. So I bought the Blu-ray from, I believe, Scorpion Entertainment. And it's a great disc. Includes some extras, including a director's commentary, uh, you know, great film quality. So it definitely looks good. Uh, but as of now, however, you can stream, at least in the United States, you can stream it on Tubi and Pluto TV. You can rent or purchase it digitally in most places. Uh, and uh, yeah, and if you do go to Videodrome in Atlanta, uh, I'm, I'm probably going to donate the disc to Videodrome so they can add it to their Graydon Clark collection. It belongs in a museum. Well, uh, let's get into the people then. Let's talk briefly about Graydon Clark. Uh, we did talk about him in the, the previous episode of, uh, of Weird House that covered one of his films. But uh, director, born 1943, um, also writer and early on an actor, best known for such films as Without Warning, The Return, 1987's Uninvited. That's a killer cat movie starring George Kennedy. <gasps> oh, I don't think I realized that was Graydon Clark. That's the one with the killer mutant cat on a yacht. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet, but I hear oh. hear great things about it. Oh my lord, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> Whoever had the idea to set a, a killer cat movie on the open sea, like with water, <laughs> it was just amazing. Uh, he also uh, directed 1979's Angel's Revenge and the 1984 Jodan Baker movie Final Justice that a lot of MST3K fans will be familiar with. That is not the movie Final Sacrifice, which I always right. confuse it with. Not the one set in Canada with Rousedower. It's the one set in Malta with Jodan Baker as a dyspeptic sheriff. Yeah. On the acting front, you'll find uh, Clark in, well, cameos in his own films, but he also had parts in the, let's see, the 1969 biker film Satan's Sadist, starring Russ Tamblin, and 1970s Hell's Bloody Devils. Uh, he also <laughs> wrote the screenplay for Satan's Sadists. That sounds like a joke title. Like a, <laughs> they're trying to create a tongue twister. Uh, Satan sells sadists down by the seashore. Yeah. Um Let's see. Yeah, he he, uh, he had an interesting um, filmography, working in various genres, and he directed his last film, Star Games, in 1998. His 2013 autobiography was titled "On the Cheap: My Life in Low Budget Filmmaking." All right. Well, I don't think I can vouch for the quality of Final Justice, but of his three uh, earlier 
B horror movies, all, all three are a fun time. The Uninvited, Without Warning, and The Return, uh, thumbs up all around on those. Now, uh, on the writing side of things, um, two of the prime writers on this were Ken and Jim Wheat, born 1950 and 1952, respectively, brothers, uh, who also wrote and directed 1985's Ewoks The Battle of Endor, which we previously <gasps> covered on the show. I don't know if that's a movie I would single out for the quality of its writing, but, uh, I mean, how can you hate on Battle for Endor? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's a fun ride, and it's now on Disney+. Plus. Uh, other screenplays of theirs include 1989's The Fly 2, um mm. yeah that's that's generally that's yeah that's that's an, an interesting film um and <laughs> not not as it's it's not as good as this cronenberg's the fly obviously but it takes it fully embraces just being a monster movie being like a really goopy gross monster movie uh-huh uh they also wrote a nightmare on elm street four. Oh yeah i remember that being uh the last arguably good one until a uh, new nightmare okay uh they also did the birds two and 2000s pitch black as such you'll see their name on all the various riddick movies that have come out like chronicles of riddick uh because they they uh, wrote the screenplay for pitch black characters created by yeah um another writer credited on this one is curtis birch um and he was an editor and producer who worked on various clark films but okay this thriller film needs its own dashing hero who's going to be the uh the, the cop who comes in to save the day Well, it is, of course, going to be Jan Michael Vincent playing Wayne the cop. Jan Michael Vincent. I'm going to say strange casting choice. Uh, Something about him felt a little too handsome to play this this character who, again, is supposed to be a uh, an out of control alcoholic cop. But I liked him anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think it's a solid performance. Um, you, You know, you can see why a lot of people wanted to be in the in the Jan Michael Vincent business uh, for a while there. Uh, he lived 1944 through 2019. Handsome, you know, very competent star actor of the 70s and 80s, known for such films as Bite the Bullet from 75, The Mechanic from 72, Vigilante Force from 76, and for the Airwolf TV movie and series spinoff. Uh, he's a guy who, who seems to have had a share of personal problems, and later in life he had health problems as well. His last film was in 2002, but uh, but yeah, in this one, in some ways, it's a little the casting's a little bit odd, but you know you buy him in every scene that he's in, uh, so it uh, you know he he he's one of there are a lot of performances in this in this movie where I would easily say eh, this is not their best work. <laughs> These people did better work outside of the return. Uh, I haven't seen a lot of Jan, Jan Michael Vincent's filmography, but it's a solid performance here. I can't fault him at all for the performance. I mean, he really sells the scene where he he shoots a guy's cassette tape player in a rage. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the that's a good scene to bring up because yeah, this is a movie that I think presents various scenes that are are perhaps a challenge for actors. Like, how do you how do you pull that scene off believably? Um, I don't know. He 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 does it for the most part, and I, not everybody maybe is uh, was able to, uh, to to pull off scenes like that uh, in the return. Now the uh, the uh, the other main uh, character in this is Jennifer. She is the uh, the scientist, and she is played by Sybil Shepherd, born 1950. I'm torn on what to say about this performance because on one hand, it does not feel like she's really. Uh, it, it does not feel like a super effortful performance. Like she's you know really reaching down to pull out every <laughs> emotion mm-hmm. to put in this character. On the other hand, a Sybil Shepherd has a 
has a very easygoing charm. And even in scenes where she's not really doing much except kind of like uh, looking bemused at a cop who's acting weirdly, uh, she she's very likable. Yeah, yeah, she's very likable. And I, and I guess I wanted to like her performance more. I feel like the the picture maybe just gives her fewer moments to really allow her her talents and her her natural charisma to shine through. Uh, I mean, there's nothing I, I, nothing bad about her performance in this, but um, you know, we just we know that that uh, there are better examples of her work out there. I, you know, I like how she has her uh, she you know has her her fun Tennessee accent out. She's playing a scientist, mm-hmm. uh, but you know, there's it's just it doesn't feel like it's like quite up there on the level you expect it to be. Well, I mean, the way her character is written, I think she's supposed to be somebody who never really gets ruffled. Like, she she mm-hmm. just sort of, like, observes everything with a raised eyebrow, even when it's uh, quite weird what she's observing. Yeah. So, uh, I have to admit, when I when I think of Sybil Shepard, I generally, my mind goes instantly to TV's Moonlighting from the 1980s starring Bruce, uh, Bruce uh, Willis. Or, uh, uh, you know, I think about, I think she had a 90s TV series called Sybil. And I, I never watched any of these shows, but I just remember, especially Moonlighting, being on. It was a, it was a show that came on, and I knew who was in it. Mm-hmm. But uh, she ha- has some far more impressive movies in her filmography. Um, her, her first film was Peter Bogdanovich's 1971 movie, The Last Picture Show, alongside a, a great cast of actors such as Timothy Bottoms, Jeff Bridges, Cloris Leachman, Ellen Burstyn, and Randy Quaid, with a screenplay by Larry McMurtry based on his own novel. I also either I didn't realize or I'd forgotten that she was in Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver from 1976. Oh, yeah. She plays the uh, the campaign worker for Senator Palantine, who uh, Travis Bickle is is uh, trying to romance in a, in a very uh, awkward way. Yeah, it does not go well. As nothing goes well in that movie. No. <laughs> Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Rob, as the uh, the local host with allergies here, they sent you some of their nasal spray to treat your allergies. What was your experience like? Yeah, that's right. I always wrestle with the pollen a bit when it rolls in during the spring. So they sent me the little uh, nasal spray. I tried out the product and yeah, it sure did help me get on top of my symptoms for the day. And it's so fast acting, uh, it was already kicking in before I left the house. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It's the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes, while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription-strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can get Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Astapro and go. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. 
With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. All right, now someone who does give a great performance in this, I thought anyway, is Martin Landau, who uh, was, was also in uh, Without Warning. And in this, he plays Niles Buchanan, uh, the other local law enforcement agent. I think technically he's Jan Michael Vincent's boss. I think yeah. uh, Buchanan, he, he goes by Buck. So his character, oh, yeah, Niles yeah, Buchanan, I think the Buck is the Buke in Buchanan. So uh, Buck is the, the marshal and Jan Michael Vincent is the deputy marshal. Yeah, he uh, he seems to be having the time of his life in this role, or at least oh, yeah. uh, it, it seems that way. It was it's, it's, it's a very fun performance. In Without Warning, he plays a, like a deranged recluse uh, and uh, and and is fun in that picture as well. But in this, he plays a character that is um, a lot more comedic without being just a throwaway comedic character. Like he, there's a lot of it, one thing you can say about Martin Landau is he always had a very expressive face, and he really gets to use that face in this film. 
There are a couple of funny scenes in this movie between like Martin Landau and Jan Michael Vincent that are are so uh, are funny in such a naturalistic way. I wonder if they were improvised by the actors or if they were yeah. actually on the page. I would just say that's unusually good writing in those scenes in particular, like the the uh, hilarious donut beer monologue scene <laughs> or the uh, or the you know we're just a couple of Yahoo cops in a jerkwater town scene. Like th- those are good. Yeah, yeah. There's some good little scenes between the two of them, and and again, I think I think these two actors, uh, J. Michael Vincent and Martin Landau, are the ones that that really come off the best in this film. Like if this was your only example of these actors and what they were capable of, you'd be like, well, they, these guys are great. I want more buddy cop movies with with these two. <laughs> Now, we talked about uh, Martin Landau in the, the previous episode uh, a good bit, but of course, uh, he's perhaps best remembered uh, for his Academy Award-winning performances, Bela Lugosi and Tim Burton's Ed Wood from 94. He also had memorable roles in North by Northwest from 59, Cleopatra from 63, and he did a lot of TV work, including roles on the original Outer Limits, The Twilight Zone, Mission Impossible, and of course, Space 1999. I love Martin Landau. Uh, I remember there's a really great classic Twilight Zone episode where he plays like a, uh, I think like a defector in a hotel room. And he's been told that there's a secret bomb planted somewhere in his hotel room and he has to find it. I remember that episode really stuck out at me. Uh, But yeah, he's also just unforgettable as Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood. Now, playing Jennifer's dad, Dr. Kramer, is Raymond Burr, who lived 1917 through 1993. Uh, yeah, he's, he's her boss at, the, at SSR, the, the science place. Um, he is, uh, Burr is, is best known for roles in Rear Window, Godzilla, Godzilla 1985, and TV's Ironside and Perry Mason. But uh, I don't know. I would say this is probably not his best work. It's a, it's a very dry performance. Nothing bad about it, but it's... Uh, yeah, it's it's there. Uh, it's 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 it's. Uh, I don't really don't know what to say about it. He, he shows up, he lays down some plot, lays down some techno babble, uh, and then kind of wanders off. I found him amusing. His character in this movie reminds me of the psychiatrist who does the spankological protocol on Ned Flanders. You know, may God have mercy on us all. <laughs> There are some fun scenes with him, like the the scene where he gets to go out and look at a cattle mutilation. He's like he's taking notes, and the the rancher oh. is just getting more and more irate about everything, and he's like uh, he's just completely uh, non phased by the whole thing. Well, there's a great exchange. The rancher is like, I, I, you know, you're going to tell me this is an attack by a scavenger. I've seen every type of scavenger and predator in the entire world. And I know what they do. And then uh, Raymond Burr is just like, it is scientifically impossible that you have seen every <laughs> attack by a predator or scavenger. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was definitely a laugh out loud moment for me. When there, I there are also that. a couple of funny parts where he just shows up unannounced, like it cuts mm-hmm. to him and he's in the room and I, I don't know why it was just like raymond burr incoming it was very funny now we also have a very noticeable uh, very recognizable character actor in this uh playing the deranged prospector uh, that uh, that spoiler uh we find out is the one utilizing a lightsaber uh, in the in the uh, new mexico wilderness played by vincent schiavelli who lived 1948 through 2005 you've seen this guy in a thousand different movies yeah. 
Yeah, he's tons of work over the over the years during his career. One of his first big roles was that of Fredrickson in 1975's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, which of course has a, a, a diverse cast of weird character actors who would go on to uh, to, to very noteworthy uh, films, including Brad Dorif. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember if he was exactly this character, but I think he was associated with the with John Smallberries and the John Smallberries scene of the Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> yep, yep, he's he's definitely in that from 1984. He's also in Amadeus from 84, which I forgot about. Uh, he's in 1992's Batman Returns. He's in 95's Lord of Illusions from Cl- Clive Barker. He's in Ghost from 1990. He plays a ghost. And I do remember this role. He's in uh, 1997's uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond film. He has a brief role as a henchman who I think is going to interrogate Bond, but then doesn't get to. Yeah, I think they build him up as like a a, a master torture guy, but then he just gets immediately dispatched by Bond. Yeah. But yeah, he's a, he's a character actor who I think was often great in small doses like that. Um, mm. He was in one of my favorite Tales from the Crypt episodes, Morning Mess from 91. But he also showed up on shows like Highlander, Star Trek The Next Generation, and uh, a sideshow episode of The X-Files. Do you remember this one, Joe? This one had like Jim Rose and the Enigma in it. Mm, okay, yeah. Well, I, I have to say that for, for Vincent Schiavelli, I don't think... The Return is one of his better roles. I think he's he's still physically imposing uh, enough. He's not unsympathetic in these in some of these areas in the film where you're supposed to feel sympathy for him. But I don't know. Maybe it's just not the performance itself, but the choices made around that performance. He is kind of inscrutable in this movie. He doesn't talk for most of it. Yeah. But the main thing required of him in the film is to is to look very threatening as he stands there with a whirring, uh, glowing electric toothbrush slash lightsaber uh, when he's about to to, to muto somebody, and uh, and he does that quite well. Yeah. One thing I didn't realize about him is that he was also a food writer, and he won the 2001 James Beard Journalism Award for his article Sicilian Summers, published in the Los Angeles Times. Huh. Yeah, uh, you can still pull it up. It's uh, it's available. It's not behind an, an, like an ad barrier or anything. I want to read just a, 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 an excerpt from it here. Quote, in the center of the, of the vineyard is an ancient hazelnut tree. A collection of battered outdoor chairs is nestled in its shade. We all settle in. Conversation meanders and our breathing slows like the balmy afternoon breeze. We fall into our naps, content and grateful for the gifts of this piece of earth. One last cast member. Um, we mentioned the rancher who's ranting about uh, uh, about scientists on his land and about the cattle mutilations. This rancher, the main rancher, and this is played by Neville Brand, who was also in Without Warning, lived 1920 through 1992. This, is a, you'll, this guy has a face you recognize because it was really rugged, tough guy face. So he played a lot of cowboys and heavies in his time, a lot of TV westerns, and some classic uh, war movies like 53's Stalag 17 and 1970's Tora, Tora, Tora. Uh, also Mm -hmm. did his share of uh, B-movies later in his career. Now, we talked about the cinematographer uh, being noteworthy in this, not being um, uh, Dean Cuddy, but being, uh, in this case, Daniel Pearl, uh, who was born 1949 or 1951, depending on the source. Pretty famous cinematographer in music video circles, at least. Uh, But he also had previously worked on 1974's The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and uh, yeah, went on to work mostly in music videos and some some big name music videos. Even as recently as like the last couple of years, he's been the cinematographer on major music videos. So mm-hmm. even as like the music video world has perhaps 
gotten a lot smaller since the 1980s. Like, he still seems to be a big part of it. Uh, he also works on the occasional film, including Aliens vs. Predator Requiem from 20, uh, 2007, 2009's Friday the 13th reboot, as well as the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from 2003. Oh, well, I'd say both of those uh, 2000s franchise reboots are movies I don't really love, but the cinematography is pretty good. Yeah. And finally, the music on this one is from Dan Wyman. Uh, the, yeah, the music is pretty good in this one. It's, it's more traditional at times, the score, but gets more synth- synthy and great and weirder in some of the weirder moments in the film. Uh, Wyman also scored without warning and later scored the films uh, The Dead Pit from 89 and The Lawnmower Man from 92. He is credited as the orchestrator on John Carpenter's Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, and The Fog. He was also the score supervisor on 1979's Apocalypse Now. And get this, he literally wrote the book on the Moog synthesizer uh, because he wrote the principal manual on the Moog synthesizer, analog synth- on the Moog modular analog synthesizer for Robert Moog and the New Orleans Music Company. Wow. That is a truly impressive claim to fame. There's a great image I found uh, online, and it's of Wyman and Carpenter, a uh, black and white photo of them in this like synth tech gear uh, layer with you know just walls of uh, of synthesizers and various uh, you know um, by, by our standards and an old-fashioned recording equipment. There's a monitor yeah. on the wall. It looks looks amazing. Yeah. All these reel-to-reels behind them. Yeah. Yeah, just jamming. Do I see an oscilloscope? Might be, might be. All right, well, let's get into the plot of this baby. Okie doke. First thing I have to say uh, is about the menu, the top menu in the Blu-ray that you gave me, Rob. It is funny. It looks like a birthday party invitation made by a fifth grader in Word Perfect in 1994. I, I feel like I, I made things that looked like this. Uh, it's the, <laughs> the way that the characters' images are, are on it. It has a very uh, drag-and-drop click art quality, and it's I don't know what the font for the menu options is, but it looks almost kind of like Comic Sans. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, uh, having a, a great menu on a on a blu-ray is it's a, there's a fine art to it you don't see it pulled off a lot oh no i'm saying this is a great menu i would not oh, change a like single okay. thing no <laughs> notes whatsoever i like the the 1994 word perfect vibe but then you push play on this baby and you go into the movie and uh, i think we we run a, 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 a really on a roll there for a while with movies that started off in outer space uh, in the orbit of the Earth. And I think uh, in the last episode of Weird House, you were bemoaning the fact that we didn't get that again. Well, uh, surprise, we're, we're back in space. Of course we're in space. We get some, you know, the credits are in blue, Starfield in the background. The credits have a, a certain crullish quality to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we see a flying saucer right at the beginning. So there's no hiding that under a bushel. It's not going to be an alien reveal at the end. The very first thing we see is a spaceship. Yep. But once the crawlishness subsides, we do go down to planet Earth. And what? It's not the planet Earth of present day 1980. It's the planet Earth of years past. Yeah, it must be the, I guess, the late 1950s. Yeah, so we see it's like a a street on a, you know, New Mexico town uh, late at night. And we see a, you know, 50s style tank of a car pull up to the curb. And uh, a guy and a young kid get out. And what I thought is, so the kid is dressed up like a cowboy and he's got a little, uh, a little cap gun. You remember those toy guns with the strips of caps that had the hammer? Oh, yeah. Would, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I had those when I was a kid. 
and uh, this kid's got one of those and so he's he's having a ball i guess with his cap gun i don't know if he was just like slamming those things off in the back seat of the car while his dad was driving <laughs> That sounds really annoying. But uh, anyway, so oh, in fact, maybe this is what brought on the stop that we arrived at, which is that the, they get out of the car. And what I assumed at first was that the dad was going inside, I don't know, the tractor supply store or something to take care of some business. But instead, we find out the building he's going into is a bar and he's just having his kid wait outside while he has a few beers. Meanwhile, across the street, a car pulls up to a gas station and a young girl gets out. She's about the same age as the boy. And so they're both standing on sidewalks on the opposite side of the street. And then what's this? Is this a UFO flying up in the air above them? And that's right. It's boy meets girl, boy meets UFO, girl meets UFO, UFO deeply scans them with hovering lights. And then they stare up into this kind of uh, this like red vortex or these, you know, lines that are approaching some kind of animated horizon. And then the UFO finishes its business and flies away. I really like the approach to the UFO effects in this film. I mean, they're pretty ambitious, I think. And for the most part, I, I love them. We see either one of two things. It's either dazzling lights that move in strange ways, or we glimpse an almost kind of ethereal vessel that leaves some ambiguity regarding its mechanical or organic nature. And when it beams people and things, uh, we get more dazzling lights that kind of move around. We get red liquidy effects and uh, a sort of take on the like a 2001-esque Stargate uh, you know, psychedelic lightscape sequence. And I think it mostly works. It's slightly giggle-inducing at times, especially when you see the, the reaction shots from the, the humans involved. But I admire what they were going for here. They were going for something that was a little bit more dreamy, a little bit more on the almost religious side of things. Yeah, I think the dreamy stuff works. You can see it, it's almost like that when we see it from the, when we see the scene from the side it's clearly a spaceship hovering above the kids but when you look up into the light in the spaceship it's like you're no longer looking at an object instead you are looking through a kind of gateway into another realm but the the ship here is not just uh, in town to visit uh, this random boy and this random girl uh, in this random town, they also are here to visit a random prospector out in the middle of nowhere. Right. This UFO has business with Vincent Chiavelli. So Chiavelli is playing a prospector who's in a cave. And he's just knocking on the wall of the cave with a pickaxe, singing the battle hymn and the Republic. <laughs> and the UFO pulls up outside the cave. His dog runs off to bark at it. He goes off and stares into it. He also gets sort of hypnotized by the by the converging red horizons of light. And then he collapses on the floor. And you're like, what's going on? Did Vincent Chiavelli die? Uh, I mean, his dog doesn't seem harmed by it. But he, I don't know, something happened to him. Yeah, the dog seems concerned, though. The dog's like, what What happened? There, was, there were lights, and then he fell over. Yeah. Then, hey, let's skip ahead about 25 years. Yeah, yeah, we skip forward to the modern day late 1970s or perhaps 1980 itself here in America to find out what all of these characters have gotten up to since that fateful day back in the late 50s. That's right. So the two kids who saw the UFO are all grown up. And we also see Vincent Chiavelli again, who, and he is approximately 3.5 years younger than in the opening scene. Right. But uh, so we meet uh, Sybil Shepard. And she is playing Jennifer, who I, I think this is supposed to be 
not clear in the movie, but it is clear. It's just obvious who these characters are. So it, it's clear she's the girl from the opening scene. Yeah, they make a point in this movie that kind of like build up to the reveal that these adults were the, you know, and their realization, obviously, their realization that they are the kids from earlier in the film. But you know it the whole time. There's no yeah. mystery in the, in the way the film is structured. Absolutely zero mystery. It's totally obvious. So this is the girl from the opening, and now she's working for some kind of shadowy company. We see a modern shot of a city. She's up in a skyscraper, and she is a scientist now, and she's working for some kind of technical company that has something to do with satellites that is managed by her father, who is Raymond Burr, the the Spankological Protocol guy. And uh, she's been analyzing aerial photos of someplace near Alamogordo, New Mexico, and she has found anomalies in these photographs. And she wants to go investigate the anomalies to figure out what's going on there. I don't know if I was being dense or if the movie just really is not clear about exactly what it is she's investigating, like what the anomaly represents. It's just like these readings are off the charts. Yeah, I, I thought it was it was kind of vague too. Something to do with uh, also like interference in the creation of photographs. Oh, and then also for some reason there's some creep in the office who keeps hitting on her and she just kind of keeps pushing him away. Um, and he's like, Ew, why won't you go on a date with me? Yeah, and he's he's like, you can't send her out in the field alone. I should go with her. And Dad's like, you learn how to be in the field by being in the field. She can take it. She can handle it. And so that's the end of the story. And we don't think we ever see the creep again. I think we see the creep later, but he doesn't. Does he he's come not back? significant okay. to the plot. So I don't know okay. what the per- the point of the creep was. All right, so that's our girl, our little girl, all grown up, now a science woman. Uh, but then we also find out what has become of the boy. Right. The boy has become Jan Michael Vincent. He is now a beer chugging cop. It's early in the morning, but he is clearly several bottles in. He's sitting in his squad car. He is, when he finishes a glass bottle of beer, he throws it at a pile of glass bottles that he has made. This cop loves littering, by the way. Mm -hmm. He never stops throwing containers into the bushes. But uh, so, yeah, he's he's obviously just been sitting in his uh, police car drinking. And then suddenly a chase sequence kicks up because somebody else is joyriding and it's some ranch guys and a, and a ranch lady. And they're driving around really fast, also drinking. And so he peels off after them and there's a chase scene and he eventually runs them down in a. Uh, like the driveway of a ranch. I think they drive straight through a gate, like a wooden gate and destroy it. He goes up to the car and tries to give him what for, but the the guy in the car is like, my daddy owns this ranch. You can't do anything to me because of my daddy. (laughs) To which Jan Michael Vincent responds by shooting out the car radio. This is the scene where he gets mad and he just blasts the cassette player. And and that's basically when Buck shows up. Martin Landau pulls up as Buck. And at first you, you think, you, you think, okay, he's going to be the sensible one. And he is the sensible one comparatively. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he's, he shows up to sort of uh, chill things out a little bit and uh, get everybody to back down from their stance or to try to. With his outfit and the way he's got everything, like his facial hair and everything in this movie, do you think they were going for a little bit of a Lee Van Cleef as Angel Eyes look with Martin Landau here? I don't know, maybe, maybe in some scenes, but like, but, but clearly he's playing in the character up for laughs in, in others. But again, it does, you could wonder like how much of that was organic. These scenes where 
uh, they're just shooting the bull about donuts and beer. Did they just add those in because you know there was they had good chemistry and they had some funny stuff to say? And if so, does that end up changing the calibration of this character? But then again, Buck does have a lot of goofy lines later on in the film, so maybe it was just always part of the the characterization. I think there are multiple scenes where Jane Michael Vincent is really behaving in an inappropriate way. And Martin Landau's character diffuses the situation by enticing him to come to a bar with him. Yeah. yeah. So he's not like, let's shut down all the destructive uh, behavior. Let's just yeah. shut down this particular destructive behavior and maybe put that energy into this other uh, form of behavior. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed a hundred thousand miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. 
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Is right around here where we get the scene with Vincent Chiavelli where he's sitting on a hill and then he just starts yelling why are you doing this why yeah we get little little flashes of him and what he's up to okay well here i think we start getting a little more flavor of life we just see like uh jim michael vincent and martin landau uh, hanging out in a diner where i think that's just that that is the local hangout it's the watering hole it's where everybody has a little bit of uh, a little bit of colorful character interaction uh joking around and stuff there, uh, Martin Landau gives a great speech somewhere in here uh, about strips of bacon. Do you remember? This is the <laughs> yes. scene that should have earned him an Oscar before he did the uh, Bela Lugosi. He has a monologue about how he was at the restaurant and he ordered the breakfast plate and they were supposed to bring him three strips of bacon, but there were only two and he gets in a big fight with the cook and then eventually discovers that two strips of bacon are stuck together as if they were one strip. It's such a boring story, and you would be bored out of your mind if anyone in your own life told you this story, no matter how much you loved them. And yet, Martin Landau makes it amusing in this picture. I don't. It's it's a it's a real gem. Also, a thing that I noticed: Jan Michael Vincent's police car is a station wagon. I mean, I huh. guess there is such a thing as a police station wagon, but it looked funny to me. Uh, and I tried to figure out what design it was. I, I think I nailed it down. I believe he's driving an AMC Eagle, which I will mm. admit is one of the more aggressive station wagon designs, but I still found it funny. I didn't really notice the car all that much. Not when they're sitting still, anyway. There's some some vehicular stuff that happens later on. That's right. Oh, and so Sybil Shepard, she is out in the field, uh, researching the anomalies that she discovered from aerial photographs and she is driving down the highway coming into town and oh the town is i think it's supposed to be near alamogordo but it's not alamogordo it is a town called what is it little creek is that right yeah i think so so she's driving into little creek and she her car gets attacked in the dark by vincent chiavelli's dog yeah, this this dog is very inconsistent throughout the film because there are some scenes where the dog is like just super attack mode. Like, I'm going to jump on a car and attack it. I'm going to attack this person. But other times, just sitting around like this, like a sweet good boy, uh, <laughs> just watching things occur. So it's it's really unclear exactly how we're supposed to take this dog. But yeah, the dog attack causes her to wreck her car. And this is her first meeting with adult Jan Michael Vincent. So uh What's the actual character's name? Wayne. It's Wayne and Jennifer. So Wayne hears her crash her car. And so he leaves the bar and goes to investigate. 
and he <laughs> what does he do in the scene he for some reason he gets in her car and he's like let's see if it's working all right and then he like peels out in it and does some donuts or something or he drives yeah. in reverse really fast and then uh and then he drives it back to her and he's like yeah it's okay and she's like what am i supposed to applaud <laughs> And these are some of the scenes where I think Sybil Shepard's uh, vibe is good here. She, she's very unimpressed with, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, local local deputy marshal Jen Michael Vinson. Yeah, yeah. They, you, obviously, they're going to fall in love later. You know that from the get-go. That's just right. how a movie like this is going to work. But at this point, they are from different worlds, and they do not see eye to eye on what is quote-unquote cool. But anyway, she's there in town to plant some meters, like she's these little boxes that measure something, measure, I think they say radiation and uh, I, I don't know, something else. Just they take some readings. Mm-hmm. And then she's also going around taking photos of things. And she takes some photos of a rock that has weird markings on it. And then she faxes that photo back to the home office where all the scientists are hanging out with Raymond Burr. And they're like, ooh, what's going on with the weird markings on this rock? We're going to have to analyze this. Yeah. In a scene where she's on the phone with them whilst faxing at the same time. Yes. I I don't know. It's not the way fax machines worked when I used them uh, several years ago. But maybe they worked like this in some cases uh, in 1980. Well, it seems like the phone is attached to the fax machine she's used. I, I, I don't know how that works, so I'm not going to try to comment on it. I don't know. Maybe it's a feature of fax machines that I just did not know existed, and I could have been doing that the whole time. But the scientists, by the way, they're, they're acting shady about these pictures. Uh, they, they seem to be up to no good. Uh, we get a scene where I think Wayne and Jennifer are sort of remembering that maybe they met when they were kids, but they're not sure yet. And that maybe, maybe it was here because there's a part where Jennifer like stands at the gas station where she was when she was a kid and saw the UFO and Jan Michael Vincent is across the street. And then she just says to herself, she goes, it can't be possible. And then she calls up her dad on the phone and she's like, daddy, remember those wonderful lights I saw in the sky when I was a child, it was here. And he's (laughs) like, Oh, maybe it's just a coincidence. (laughs) Uh, now, next, there is a breakfast scene at the diner where uh, where Wayne is ordering a couple of breakfast rolls and a six-pack to go. But yeah. before that happens, we see a cowboy sitting at a table eating his breakfast, and he puts about six quarts of ketchup on two fried eggs. I nearly gagged. Yeah, and he eats the first egg just whole. So if you, if, if you have an aversion to... Uh scenes of fried egg eating in, in motion pictures. Uh, this is this is one to, to skip over. Uh, this is one to fast forward through for sure. I don't know why. I like ketchup and I like eggs, but watching ketchup go on eggs, is, it gives me intense dysphoria. <laughs> oh, 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 but this is the first part. This scene is the first time in the movie we actually hear anything about cattle mutilation. Despite yeah. it being such a big part of the film from here on out, I mean, they let you get a, a solid... 20, 30 minutes in before it comes up at all. Yeah, and it just kind of comes up casually, right? It's like, hey, there are also cattle mutilations going on. Well, how about that? Well, the waitress at the diner brings it up, but she's like flirting with Jan Michael Vincent when she does. She, you know, she's being kind of cutesy at him and she's like, hey, what do you think about that cattle mutilation? <laughs> but anyway, this leads to, to Wayne and Jennifer meeting up at the diner uh, and they talk about the investigations that she's doing. And he says something like, he's like, I'm not used to lady scientists running through the streets of my town. 
And uh, so, okay, whatever. But then what I have in my notes after this is daddy incoming. Raymond Daddy Burr drops into the diner like an orbital kinetic weapon. (laughs) He's just suddenly standing there. I think he's even shot from below. So he's like this imposing figure blocking the sunlight. We had no indication that he was coming. He's just here now. Yeah. Yeah. Looming large. And so this goes straight to the cattle mutilation scene. Like uh, they they go to a some ranch land where there's a creek and there's a dead cow, and one of the deputies is investigating the carcass. And uh, Raymond Burr is very interested in the subject of cattle muto, so he's sitting there taking notes in his little notebook. Meanwhile, the deputy who's trying to take photos of the uh, of the uh, situation, the photos won't come out right. They're like blurred in the middle, or they've got these big white smudges on them. And in fact, that's much like the photos taken of this location from orbit that Sybil Shepherd had earlier were. So what's going on here? And this is where we have that argument between Raymond Burr and the the rancher where he's like i've seen every kind of attack there is you're going to come up here and tell me my business and mm-hmm. raymond burr is like it is impossible you've seen every kind of attack <laughs> oh and then it, david crosby rides up and tells them there's been more muto it's not really him but it is a guy who looks remarkably like him and does neville brand show up at this point to, to gripe at them oh no he's already here neville he's brand already is already saying yeah yeah he's the rancher he's mad yeah. mm-hmm now, here's where we start getting some slasher stuff that hasn't really happened so far in the movie. We get a shoe salesman and his wife, and they're doing dude ranch stuff. They're out yeah. riding horses on the trail, and the, the the shoe salesman guy is trying to pretend to be a macho cowboy in front of his wife. He's like, I know things about cows. Look at those cows down there. I'm going to go up to them. And she's like, oh, maybe you better not. And he's like, oh, don't be silly. Cows eat grass. They are not carnivorous. Uh, but when he approaches them, uh-oh, Vincent Chiavelli's down there. What's he getting up to? There's like a whirring noise. He's trying to investigate what that could be. And and it turns out Vincent Chiavelli is hiding behind a cow, holding a device that looks like a glowing purple electric toothbrush, uh, kind of a dagger-sized version of the Mace Windu lightsaber. It's making the buzzing noise. Vincent is clearly doing some cattle mutilation for some reason. And then, uh-oh, he attacks the dude ranch guy and he he breaks over the barrier into human muto. Yeah, though the the dude ranch guy at first is like, oh, sorry to disturb you. Carry on with your cow- obvious cowboy stuff here. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, then he is um, he's lightsabered. So after this, there's a chase scene where he's chasing uh, Mrs. Dude Ranch, and then she does a really impressive stunt fall where she rolls down a hill. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of pretty impressive stunt falls in this movie. Somebody's rolling down an actual hill in slow motion. Uh, but this gives way to the scene with Buck and Wayne driving in the police car and the discourse on beer can holes and donuts. Rob, would you yeah. like to explain? Uh, it was just this scene where uh, J. Michael Vincent is driving and uh, uh, Martin Landau's character, Buck, has a, uh, a donut in one hand and a can of beer in the other. And he's bemoaning the fact that you can't, the hole uh, in the opening in the top of the beer can is not large enough to permit the dunking of the donut. Uh, but he demonstrates that he's still able to cope by like dribbling some of the beer onto the donut before he eats it. And it's just another ridiculous food-based monologue in this film from Martin Landau. He has chocolate icing on his face the entire time he's doing this, <laughs> by the way. Yeah. Oh, but so they're driving along and they just happen to come across the dude ranch people. They find the dead shoe salesman guy. And 
<laughs> oh, this scene is so funny. Martin Landau goes and looks at the guy, and then I wrote down his quote. He says, well, it's a mute, but this time it ain't cattle mute. It's humans. There's human mutilations now. <laughs> Just like, so like, not only does he point out that the body they're looking at is a human, but he says it twice. Yeah. Uh, and then he says, we're going to get into this. We're going to find out who or what's doing it. If it's Satanists or even aliens, we're going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And he's excited too. It's not like something terrible is happening in our community and we need to stop it before it gets worse. It's like, let's, let's get into it. I'm ready. <laughs> oh, he's so excited. But Jan Michael Vincent comes back with some some humbling reality. He says, hey, we're just a couple of Yahoo cops from a jerkwater town. We are not about to have the means to investigate something like this. And then Buck says, come on, Wayne, I want to prove my theory. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? which one was his theory? He just cast out yeah. two drastically different ideas about what this could be. <laughs> right. Is that the theory? Maybe his theory is that it's aliens or Satanists. Yeah, I don't know. It's at least still at the hypothesis stage at this point. <laughs> uh, now, there's some stuff that goes on with the ranchers don't like Sybil Shepherd. They think that her scientific instruments are causing the cattle mutilations. So they like attack her later that night. Uh, the hothead cattle creeps are trying to uh, assault her in the rain to say like, we don't know what you're doing, but it's killing our cattle. And she's like, no. And uh, one of them, I think literally says to her, you can't get away from us, lady scientist. But then just when they're about to, I don't know, beat her up or something, Jan Michael Vincent arrives and he beats them up and then the ranch daddy arrives and then he's like, I never raised my sons to hit women. And so the situation is diffused, but clearly the ranch daddy is still mad at Sybil Shepherd because he does think that her wicked science must be causing the cattle deaths. Yeah. He's not backing down from that. He's like, he's like, I apologize for my son attacking. Yeah. But now you need to apologize for muting my cows. And, yeah. uh, and so we don't actually, we're not really able to diffuse the situation all that much. But hey, so we've been waiting the whole movie. It's like, when are Sybil Shepard and J. Michael Vincent going to fall in love? Well, here's where we get it. So they go home together. She's really impressed by looking at all the books on his shelf. It's full of like Arthur C. Clarke, science fiction and astronomy books, but also crank UFO literature. And he's like, oh, are you impressed that this, this dumb cop is actually so smart? And she's essentially like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and here's the scene where we find out that, you know, Wayne's been into this stuff ever since he was a little kid. And uh, could could it be that he was the Cap Gun Cowboy she saw out on the street that night with the UFO? You know what? It is. They discover it in this scene. Oh, but not, not before uh, she says that she would like a beer. And he goes, it's in the refrigerator. And then she's like, you're not going to get it for me. And then he's like, light or real? <laughs> I was slightly disappointed we didn't get to see in the refrigerator. Uh, those oh. are often uh, fun where it was like, how are they going to represent the, the the current life status of a particular character by showing me the contents of the fridge? I would say the bachelor refrigerator is one of my favorite film cliches. Mm -hmm. I think this one would have had, um, yeah, mostly beer. Um, I guess mostly quote unquote real beer with a few light beers sprinkled in there. Um, Got to be some sort of gross leftovers of some sort. Like maybe, mm -hmm. um, oh, I don't know if this town would have pizza. But um, but yeah. something, some sort of fast food that's that's maybe not even in a container, but just sitting in there on, on one of the grills. 
Well, I'd say the biggest movie bachelor refrigerator content cliche is the old uh, Chinese food takeout boxes, but oh, I don't yes. think they have Chinese restaurants in Little Creek. Yeah. Sometimes isn't there like a single apple or something where it's kind of like, oh, the, he was going to turn his life around that week and he bought that apple, but he still mm -hmm. hasn't gotten around to eating it. Yeah. Well, in any case, we don't see it. Instead, we see them honky-tonk dancing together. There is a honky-tonk dancing scene that will take your breath away. <laughs> but somehow this gives way to them establishing firmly the UFO connection. They're like, it was you. Yeah, it was you. I saw them too. We, we saw the UFO together. So now they're, they're just bonded for life. Today's episode is brought to you by eBay. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left. Look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Today's episode is brought to you by Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast from Ruby Studio in partnership with Intel. Explore the future of technology that's rapidly evolving our world today with the help of AI. There's still so much work and research needed to fully understand the power and potential of AI, and Intel is at the forefront of implementing AI in revolutionary technology that's changing the world we live in for the better. In each episode, Graham interviews the minds transforming medicine and healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more while pioneering new uses for AI in these spaces. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. If you haven't heard of Visible, now you have. They're the wireless carrier that's making wireless visible. It's in the name. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon, just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. Having a one-line plan means you only need you to save. No estranged roommates, exes, cousins twice removed, or AI-powered humanoid robots needed. And because $25 a month really means $25 a month, you can call, text, stream, whatever, as much as you want without worrying about getting dinged at the end of the month. No hidden fees, no surprises. No, really. It's like the old saying goes, you can't judge a book by its cover, but you can judge a company by its name. So spread the word. Tell all your friends there's a wireless company out there with transparency in their name, and they're called Visible. 
Start saving on wireless today at Visible.com. Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Uh, Meanwhile, there's some more kind of perfunctory, just uh, uh, cattle muto violence, like the ranch boys go out hunting for the measuring instruments on their land, and they get attacked by the prospector, Vincent Chiavelli, who lightsabers them. And so there's more human muto. And uh, meanwhile, Raymond Burr, back in the home office, I guess he has left uh, Little Creek and gone back to the big city, wherever that is. And we get a terrifically out of nowhere techno babble scene. <laughs> uh, I remember thinking that like they have not laid the groundwork for him to suddenly be talking about how the crystal structure of this rock is an exact map of our solar system and <laughs> all this stuff. And I'm not going to try to reproduce the whole thing, but he says a bunch of stuff. There's a scene after this where Wayne and Jennifer are investigating one of her measuring devices and they see a mutilated cow nearby and they go to check that out, but end up in a shootout with a ranch hand and the ranch hand ends up tumbling down a hill, another tumble stunt, but this one ends with a head plunge straight into an open cow torso. So he straight up does <laughs> the tauntaun sleeping bag, but by accident. Yeah. Cause there's a mutilated cat cow at the bottom of the hill and just like tumble, tumble, plop i think we don't quite see it it's not as gross as it sounds but it is pretty funny and he's not dead he gets out of the cow and he's like oh he's all covered with with semi-believable cow blood now we're building up to the big reveal which is that uh at some point buck martin landau ends up uh heading up into the mountains to the prospector's shack to pick up one of the metering units for sybil shepherd and so he goes up to the the shack and he knocks on the door and there's nobody home so he looks around inside and discovers inside the shack there is a secret passage going into a cave full of burning torches. He picks up a torch and he explores down the cavern and it ends in a purple portal. There's like an animated vortex that is swirling into nothingness and, and, uh, and a dancing display of colors. And he's looking at it like what's going on. Uh, but then he hears something, somebody's coming in. So Buck hides, and Vincent Chiavelli walks in, and he walks up to the vortex, and he, gets, he says, here you go, and he chucks a cow <laughs> organ into the vortex. I read that the vortex here was created with practical effects, by the way, and, and uh, yeah. it, looks, it looks pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah, I like it. So Buck confronts the prospector with a gun. He says, I know what you're doing. You're taking organs from cattle. Our most important food <laughs> supply, 
That's what he says. And sending them back to your masters. But then he looks down at the bucket that uh, the prospector has brought in. And he says, that's not a cow organ. That's a human hand. You're using human organs. You're under arrest. <laughs> but then you know what's going to happen at this point, and it's heartbreaking for such a fun character. Uh, but no, big, nobody's been able to get the drop on our um, our lightsaber wielding rural slasher uh, prospector here, uh, because he instantly whips out that lightsaber weapon and uh, disarms Martin Landau, like literally cuts his arm off Star Wars style and throws it into the vortex. Yeah, fed to whatever's on the other side. For whatever reasons, this is happening. It's happening again. Right, so Buck unfortunately succumbs to death by Muto. Uh, now, meanwhile, I mentioned earlier that there's this stuff about the feds. There there are government agents there, and I could not tell what they actually knew or what they were up to. We just see these suits in town, and we've been warned by another character that they've been asking around about uh, Wayne and Jennifer. And the feds uh, say the feds are like on the phone with somebody and they're like, well, sir, the deputy and the scientist have come across information that could be misinterpreted by the media. Yes, sir. Right away. And then they hang up and I, we don't know who they're talking to or what they're going to do. They basically just seem to exist to chase our heroes around a little bit before the final confrontation. Right. And I guess we're basically at the final confrontation or in the, the final stretch. So like uh, the prospector suddenly confronts, Wayne and Jennifer at a motel and he seems very anguished. Actually. He's like, I tried to scare you away, but you wouldn't go. I just want to be left alone. But it ends with, uh, well, first of all, I would say, I don't understand what this was about, but this scene had extremely jarring cuts between like full daylight shots and really dark shots. Did, did you hmm. understand what this was about? No, not at all. Well, for whatever reason, they end up fighting. And so it's like Jan Michael Vincent with a two by four versus Vincent Chiavelli with a toothbrush sized lightsaber. And they're fighting it out. At one point, uh, Chiavelli like knocks down a pillar of a, a lattice roof and that falls on Jan Michael Vincent. Uh, and then the, the scene ends with a frame that had hilarious composition. So I actually took a picture of my TV screen and added it to the document here where the feds run up and point a gun at Jan Michael Vincent, but there's also another deputy standing there and he's wearing a, like a red, uh, Kentucky fried chicken Colonel style bow tie with the like dangles on it. I don't yeah. know what you call that style of tie. It's, it's very funny. This gives way to a whole big chase sequence where the feds are trying to kill Jan Michael Vincent. At uh, one point, uh, he he gets a he, I think he steals a motorcycle from a motorcycle store and jumps yep. it through a plate glass window. Yeah, yeah, a lot of motorcycle stunts uh, start uh, happening in the, the, the later part of this film. Yeah, going through the window here, and he'll go through something else in a bit. Yeah, and meanwhile, Vincent Chiavelli take, uh, takes Sybil Shepard back to the portal. The, the vortex and he's got her there and he says he does a monologue. He's like, I've done everything they wanted all of these years. They were supposed to keep track of us and they needed me. It ain't fair. But now that she's here, they won't need me anymore. And I think the idea is he's like, he for many years has truly actually not aged at all because the vortex has given him anti-aging properties to aid in his alien servitude. 
and now he's afraid that the aliens are sort of retiring him and they're going to use Sybil Shepard to do his job now. Did you understand it that way? Um, roughly, but th- this is the part where the movie really gets confusing. And I, I'm normally pretty quick to be able to sort of form a theory or a little headcanon about what's going on in a movie like this, mm-hmm. but it's kind of all over the place. So, I mean, at this point, not counting anything that comes after it, I guess we're supposed to think the aliens came to him in the late fifties and said, Hey, you're the chosen one. Now here is a tiny lightsaber we want cow parts, not the good parts, just the weird parts, bring them yeah. to this cave and throw them <laughs> into this portal in regular uh-huh. intervals. And, uh, if you do that, then we'll grant you, uh, like eternal youth. And I guess he's like, this is a sweet gig. And now he's afraid that gig is about to be passed on to someone who is, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine she's going to do a better job at this. I mean, he has experience at this point. Yeah. He's been doing a great job from what I can tell. Yeah. Uh, but so for some reason he's mad at her. And so he tries to use the lightsaber to kill her, but for some reason it is unable to harm her. He like stabs her with it, but it does not harm her at all. Yes. Yeah. She is special. She has chosen. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, we'll continue to have to try and make sense of that. So there's more moto stunts. Uh, Jane Michael Vincent does the stunts and then he ends up up in the cave. And uh, unfortunately he has to fight Vincent Schiavelli's dog. I don't, I don't want scenes where a human has to punch a dog. Come on. Yeah. Yeah. And the dog doesn't die. It has that yeah. going forward at least, but, but it's, yeah, it's very inconsistent with this dog. Sometimes this dog is attacking people. Other times the dog's just like sheepishly watching things from underneath the table. So um, it's, it's all over the place. But okay, so here's where things get even more convincing. We get like a new layer of interpretation. Uh, JMV makes it up there and he reunites with Sybil Shepard. And Sybil Shepard says to him, we were chosen, all of us, even him, I think referring to the prospector, but he wasn't supposed to kill anyone. It wasn't meant for evil. I know that. Okay, but she doesn't explain how she knows this or, or what this exactly means. So... This is where we start getting this idea that the prospector has just been misinterpreting alien directives this whole time, which, I mean, I've got to sympathize with him at this point. Like, he's devoted the last 20 years of his life or so to mutilating cattle and feeding a vortex underground, um, you know, at the expense of his career. And, but for what? Just because the aliens didn't get the verbiage right in the signal they were beaming, beaming into his brain? And if they didn't want him to do this, what's he supposed to have been doing this whole time? And why hasn't there been any course correction on the part of the aliens? And what is there just a big pile of, of cow parts building up on the other end of this portal on some alien world? And they're like, should we do something about this? And they're like, well, it would be rude to do something now. We should just, we'll get, let him keep doing it. And, you know, in another 20 years, uh, that girl that we looked at will do something about it. I, you know, I could see this really working as a plot where there are aliens and they've given humans instructions, but the humans don't understand the instructions correctly. So they're just doing absolutely useless stuff because they think incorrectly it's what the aliens want. That doesn't really come through except in this possible interpretation of what to make of the ending here. But uh, if you if you premised a movie more thoroughly on that, I think that could be great. Yeah, I could see that working. Like if you had a movie where somebody's been given alien uh, signals to build something and the aliens really want them to build a communicator, but instead the person receiving the signals is just making weird art. 
um, yeah. you know, that are, are not even weird art, but just like bad art instead. Uh, but they feel like it's divinely inspired because the aliens are giving it to them. Like I could see that working. Okay. But the ending gets even more confusing after that. Uh, J. Michael Vincent, Sybil Shepard get sucked into the portal together. And then we see them in a padded white room together as if they are in a, a mental hospital. And yeah, like that was a, it's a weird flash scene because it does look like a mental hospital, except they're in the same room to each, to, with each other, like holding each other, which I think is generally not what you see in scenes like this that are depicting mental institutions. And also, it's clearly a human room. It's not like a white alien room like you might yeah. expect, like the white room in Phantasm, for example. Yeah, so I, I don't know what the deal with that is. But then they don't stay there. After that, there are more lights in the sky, and then we see Raymond Burr, I guess, oh, uh, I think I forgot to mention, Raymond Burr and all his scientist buddies like flew into town because of the readings they were getting out of the computer, <laughs> and they, they fly into town. So then you're seeing Raymond Burr standing there, and he's like looking up at the sky, watching passing UFOs, and he's got tears in his eyes. Yeah. That was that reminds me of a, of a previous weird scene, though, where he, they, were, they were crunching the numbers, and then he's like, get the chopper ready. We're going to New Mexico. But <laughs> he was just in New Mexico. So it's like you yeah. kind of expected his underlings to be like, so you mean we just want to go back? Like you were there yesterday. We do go want back the same transportation. You, yeah. Yeah. Where you were a few scenes ago. Yeah. Something feels very out of order about that. Like it, mm-hmm. it, it, it almost feels like maybe he wasn't supposed to be in those scenes in New Mexico earlier on, but they, cha- I don't know. So the portal has eaten the prospector at this point, right? Yes. Uh, oh, I forgot what happened to him. Yeah, I guess uh, he gets I knocked I think she lightsabers him uh, 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 in the yeah. face. He says some more stuff, uh, you know, more sort of uh, sympathetic, like I, I had it wrong uh, things. But then he gets uh, uh, sucked into the portal, yeah. They get uh, white-roomed back via the UFO, deposited back on the Earth. That's right. Yes. Then they're standing back on the earth. So we don't know how long they were gone, but they've been like beamed down and they're back in their original clothes, just standing by the prospector shack. I think they're just standing out on the mountain. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know. I don't know what to make of that at all. Yeah. uh, Like why were these three individuals chosen? Why was the prospector feeding animal parts to a portal in a cave? How exactly did he get the surgical lightsaber? Um, and, you know, what was his what was the actual alien intent if they didn't want him to do those things he was doing? And why did they choose them? Were they chosen to stop the prospector from doing the things that the aliens <laughs> accidentally told him to do? Uh, <laughs> I just don't get it. Or I feel like it's only one big trope away from making sense. Like you need like a uh, like a uh, like a, a, a fateful space baby. Like these two are supposed to be the parents of the future messiah that the aliens send to bring peace to the planet. You know, trot something out like that. Uh, because as it stands, I just have no idea what the aliens wanted out of this, what they got out of it in the end. Um, though our heroes do save the day, I guess. Though, if you want to do a completely incomprehensible freakout ending, you could do an ending like uh, like the Phase Four one, where it's like human viewers cannot even comprehend what the new ant civilization is going to be like. So we just get abstract art. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I'm I'm down with that. But this one, it feels it doesn't lean hard enough into just like incomprehensible freak out for, for that to make sense as an ending because they just end up being beamed back to earth and it's happily ever after. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I'm not I'm not really sure how to take. It feels confusing and uh, and hard to stitch together at the end. Um, and and I'm not even sure what I would change about it because if I were to, if you were to change something about it, you would have to make definite decisions that the movie didn't seem to make. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'm not sure. I feel like one thing that would have helped it is if you definitely go clearer on the idea that Vincent Chiavelli misunderstood the instructions he was given by the aliens. And if there was, you wouldn't have to be super explicit about it, but if there was even some kind of hint as to what their actual intentions had been, what did he misunderstand? I feel like that could have made it all kind of work better. Yeah. Like even if it was, even if you didn't reveal it, if you just had a scene where like civil shepherd hands, the, the lightsaber item to Jan Michael Vincent's character. And they're like, now we have the real together. We have the true uh, signal. Now we know what to do. Let's go out into the world and do it. You don't even have to say what it's going to be, but at least that gives us the idea. It's like, okay, this is, this is true course correction here. And now we're on the right track. Oh, like they get the lightsaber and they're like, oh, we were supposed to use this on the, uh, on Seattle, not on cattle that (laughs) I understand. We were supposed to use this to make cows, not take cows apart. This was part of the alien plan. I don't know. (laughs) Right. Yeah. It's a cow synthesis device. (laughs) (laughs) Again, it's just hard to imagine. Like what was the original instruction and then how did it get so garbled that this was the end result? Uh, where the, the it's like we want you to wander around the countryside, uh, cutting open cattle and bringing us um, uh, some of the more useless parts. Throw it into the portal. Yeah, where does the portal go? I guess to the the home planet, but we we just don't know. Second film in a row with an alien portal, though. So we, we have oh. that going for us. Who? Well, uh, baffling ending aside, I I did really enjoy the return, and I enjoyed talking about it. Yeah, yeah, this is a fun one, and uh, I think. Yeah, if you're if you're a fan of movies of this caliber, uh, it's definitely worth worth picking up, taking a look at, and it, it ties in nicely. This was a nice nice uh, example of a, we don't do this a lot, but having a a subject on stuff to blow your mind that also ties into the film we're talking about in Weird House. Yeah, and uh, yeah, on that note, I'll go ahead and remind everybody that we are primarily a science podcast here at Stuff to Blow Your Mind, but on Fridays we put aside most serious concerns and we just talk about a weird film with Weird House Cinema. If you want to follow the movies that we talk about on Weird House Cinema, you can go to one of two places. There is the uh, Samuda Music blog, where I uh, do blogs, posts about the movies we cover. But also, if you use Letterboxd, that's L-E-T-T-E-R-B-O-X-D dot com, uh, we have a profile there. Our profile is Weird House, and we have a list of all the films that we've covered on Weird House Cinema, and sometimes we'll also go ahead and include a listing of the next film in case you want to watch ahead. Huge thanks as always to our excellent audio producer seth nicholas johnson if you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello you can email us at contact at stuff to blow your stuff to blow your mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent. Switch to Visible, the wireless company that makes wireless visible. Get a one-line plan with unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon. Just $25 a month, every month, taxes and fees included. No hidden fees, no surprises, no, really. What are you waiting for? Get with the times and switch to Visible at Visible.com.
Monthly rate on the Visible plan for data management practices and additional terms, visit Visible.com. Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway. And now, for a limited time, get more Cedar Point fun for less with our limited-time bundle for just $49.99. Get admission, parking, and all-day drinks for one low price. But you better hurry, because this bundle won't last long. Save now at cedarpoint.com. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.